0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservations. Welcome to episode 341. Continuing with uh, the development of clocks, the trade guilds, and the clockmakers' company. And uh, all this occurred in in Great Britain. Um, In Shropshire, the Shrewsbury Fraternity of Tradesmen had, by 1656, became known as the Company of Smiths, farriers, Armorers, cutlers, furbishers, spurriers, sheath makers, sheath grinders, brazers, and clockmakers. Its members had to have completed a seven year apprenticeship, although no clockmakers are recorded until the opening of the 18th century. Ludlow had its anti country of clocksmiths and other commonly called hammermen and clockmakers are recorded from the early 18th century. By the 17th and 18th centuries, most of the medieval trade guilds had either gone out of existence or had largely become friendly societies, concerned mainly with the social well-being of their members. Thus, the enforcement of the charters was left to the boroughs, and one of their few sources of income was from fines levied on those who were found to be trading within the borough but were not freemen. As many provincial towns had no trade guilds, or at least none that were relevant to clockmaking, to check the quality work became a freeman, becoming a freeman relied on election or the recommendation of a patron. This was often a family member who was already a freeman, and the intermarriage between families in the same trade was one means of facilitating an election. Sometimes local gentry acted as patrons, primarily to maintain the political balance of power. Clockmakers new to a town and not related to other freemen might obtain their freedom by presenting the borough authorities with an example of their work. In 1703, John Stretch petitioned the Common Council of Bristol that Having served an apprenticeship as a maker of clocks and watches, he was deleterious to exercise that trade and wholly to reside in the same city. He had been informed that a curious piece of patrimony works fit to be set up for the public building now erecting for the mayor would be more acceptable than the usual fine or fee. So he was kind of bribed in a way. The clockmakers and watchmakers in Bristol objected to another competitor and established business there, but this was rejected as being a very impotent, saucy petition reflecting on the rights and liberties of the house. John Stretch subsequently made a curious watch and dial plate, probably a timepiece and a sundial with which to set it, and he was admitted as a free Burgess. Although he agreed to keep the same in repair, apt to own charge during his life, John Stretch probably left Bristol four years later to join members of his family in Philadelphia. And he began the Stretch dynasty, um, and his son Peter Stretch, some of the finest clocks ever made in the uh, first and second quarter of the 18th century. James Woolley of... Condor presented a turret clock to the corporation of Nottingham in 1726, prior to which he had traded from the Market Stall, and was then made a freeman. The well known clockmaker John Whitehurst, who originated from Collington in Cheshire, he later became a geologist and scientist and was appointed as Stamper of Money Weights to secure the nation's gold coinage presented a clock to Derby Corporation for the new town hall shortly after he moved there in 1736. He likewise was made a freeman and so allowed to work in the town. In York, Henry Hindley, not being apprenticed in the city and unable to buy his freedom, made payment in kind by making two handsome long-case clocks for the corporation in 1731. So again, we see here, you either buy your way in with money, uh, nepotism, uh, or making gifts, making clocks and other uh, horological or scientific information to become part of the, part of the guild. And uh, it was important to be part of that guild. So, so in Edinburgh and other Scottish cities, the towns had hammermen's guilds, originally set up to counter the influence of immigrant Flemish craftsmen. These guilds vigorously pursued any one trading in their area of jurisdiction who was not a member or who produced inferior work. The hammermen included all workers in metal, the goldsmith, silversmith, blacksmith, armorer, cutler, sword maker, gunmaker, saddler, buckle maker, locksmith, pewterer, nail maker, hookmaker, founder, and later clockmaker. The Edinburgh Hammerman incorporated dates from 1483, and by 1646 clock and watchmakers had increased the numbers so as to be recognized as a branch of the locksmith trade, thus allowing them to become members. The Glasgow Scotland Guild began in 1536, allowed clock and watchmakers to become members in 1649. Haddington in 1753, but Aberdeen, by some oversight, not until 1800. In Glasgow, only 25 clockmakers and watchmakers became hammermen during the whole of the 18th century, increasing to five new members a year by 1823 through 34. In 1846, the exclusive rights and privileges of the Scottish incorporations were abolished and thereafter membership was strictly voluntary. Some workers were excluded from working in towns due to other religions. The Quakers, as part of their creed, refused to swear oaths of allegiance, and this debarred them from joining tradesmen guilds. As a result, they set up business in small rural villages, preferably one with a meeting house, where they could work without interference. Many Quaker clockmakers produced simple country 30-hour clocks, particularly in areas like Oxfordshire or Cumbria, where there were still strong Quaker followings. In London, a tradesman had to be a freeman or citizen of the City of London. Only a citizen had the right to work at a craft in the city, and a craftsman became a citizen by becoming a freeman of any one of the many city guilds. It was also possible to obtain freemen of the city by purchase. And this was increased in 1737 from 30 pounds to 50 pounds, a not inconsiderable sum at the day, designed to restrict the entry of outsiders. And I must say that the 30 pounds to 50 pounds in 1737 would be the equivalent of an entire years of wages of tradesmen. So in the early 17th century, The very few clockmakers that in existence joined companies, such as the goldsmiths or blacksmiths' companies. But soon, the clockmakers wanted to control the trade themselves. So in 1631, the clockmakers' company was incorporated by Royal Charter to regulate the clock and watch trade within a 10-mile radius of the City of London. Although in practice, the regulations were only enforced within the city itself, so important, manufacturing and fast, fashionable shopping areas such as Westminster were not included. One has to realize that many written accounts of the company try to give the impression that it was all powerful and able to exercise its control throughout the London clock trade. But being a member of the Clockmakers' Company was only one of the several ways of being allowed to legally trade in the City of London. In any event, The regulations were riddled with inconsistencies, many of these due to the fact that most of the regulations could be circumvented by payment of a fine or even a bribe. The primary purpose, at least initially, of the clockmaker's company was to control working conditions in the trade and to prevent any foreigner working except with a member of the company. It had full control over the trade in London although, of course, it had no jurisdiction outside it and even found difficulty in enforcing its laws within the area of its own jurisdiction. Only its members could trade and it restricted the number of apprentices to two per full member, more for the officials, at any one time, but this rule was often flouted and broken. It also controlled the quality of outposts with the the power to destroy any work not up to its standards. It could also prevent the incorporation of clocks, watches, and sundials without approval. Although it is often said or implied, particularly by dealers wishing to enhance the importance of a clock by a listed maker, that membership of the clockmaker's company was an honor, the reality was far from this, believe me. So Brian Looms, in an article which clarifies many of the working practices of the company, says that it was as much an honor as being constricted into the Army as being asked to pay a fee for the privilege of being in the clockmaker's company. By far, the majority of members joined because they were forced to out of their own free will. But quite often under duress and threats, and almost universally against their own natural inclination. They were compelled to join an organization which they frequently felt they could do well without. The maker's name had to appear on the dial, and this could be that of a full member, for example, a freeman of the company, who had to have served a seven-year apprenticeship and paid for his entry fee. The apprentice usually started when he was 14 years old, and on becoming free, he had to work as a journeyman, for example, to be employed as a qualified clockmaker by an established master for a minimum further two years. After a further period, and of course, paying the necessary fees, he could become a master with his own apprentices. But some never took up their freedom, instead working as unlicensed journeymen throughout their entire careers. An associate member was known as a free brother. This was any other sort of person who applied for membership, but had not been trained by a London freeman. A brother could, in theory, only work as a journeyman under a clockmaker who was a full member and could not sign his own clocks a free brother could become a freeman by the payment of a fee known as freedom by redemption free brothers included those who had been apprenticed to another city company such as the goldsmiths or the blacksmiths although they were not obliged to join or had come to london from the providences indeed many of the great names in horology came from outside the capital and had to join as brothers for example as second-class members, Antheris Framantil, Daniel Quare, Joseph Williamson, Joseph Nib, Christopher Gould, John Arnold, and even the great Thomas Tompian had become full members by buying their freedom, not working for it. So what is not often appreciated is that these seemingly strict regulations only apply to those who had become members of the clockmaker's company. And who had, in effect, voluntarily agreed to abide by the rules, many clockmakers worked at the trade quite legally because they were members of other guilds. Any one who was free of any company had the right for his son to be free in that company also, and this is freedom by patrimony. So the son could be apprenticed to the clockmaker later, he had every right to set up in business in the trade but would not be recorded as a member of the clockmaker's company, especially if the clockmaker to whom he was apprenticed was himself a member of another company. To emphasize that membership of a relevant company was not essential, many instrument makers were members of the grocer's company. How do we like that? So the system in practice even more complex. As an apprentice may have been legally bound to one master, who may or may not have been a member of another company, but might have actually served, worked under another master. He even might have been passed over by another master during his apprenticeship. The officials of the clockmaker's company comprised a master, three wardens, about ten assistants, and four stewards, all of whom acted for a year and were appointed from the rank below. The comment that the offices of warden or master were prizes only to be won by makers who had proved their worth by their products. As expressed by previous generation of horological writers, is far. this is quite far from reality. These officials were appointed according to their length of service, not on account of their popularity or merit. So far from being an honor, serving as an official not only involved much extra work, but payment had to be made for the privilege. Stewards had to organize and pay for the annual feast of the officials, their wives and guests, while assistants had to pay the not inconsiderable sum of six pounds on being appointed. Many tried to avoid the task, usually by paying a fine until browbeaten into submission. Even Edward East the great Edward East, horologist, refused to serve as warden until forced to do so by the Lord Mayor, and even then he seldom attended, surely not the actions of someone who was being elevated to a position of honor, although he did serve as master in 1645 and 1652. While there might have been some kudos for a clockmaker to become a master of the company, the route was so expensive, both in time and money, but it was an honor most were quite prepared to forego it if all possible. Nevertheless, those that did serve as masters of the Clockmaker's Company were those that had reached some standing in the trade, and those that filled the office are listed. Some, such as Nicholas Coxtier, were elected up to four times, but it is noticeable that some of the most important names in the trade, such as Thomas Tompion, Daniel Quare, George Graham, and Joseph Windmills only appear once. After the middle of the 18th century, those elected as master were increasingly makers of watches, chronometers, and precision timekeepers, and not the unusual for a maker of ordinary long-case clocks to be um, elected a master of the clockmaker's company. So... um, so the middle of the eighteenth century to the end, again, um most of these elected as the master were watchmakers, chronometer makers, and precision timekeep keep makers. So they weren't individuals that were up on fashion. Um other the clockmakers would have been had some direct connections with the uh the case makers and they would be more fashion conscious than uh so it's kind of a strange scenario who would be the master of the clockmakers company. So and, and as early as the end of the 17th century, the clockmaker's company had been t- petitioned for all those working in the trade to be compelled to be members of the company. But this was resisted heavily, particularly by the blacksmith's company, who feared loss of membership and hence revenue. It was not until 1765 that a clockmaker could only become a citizen of London by becoming free of the clockmaker's company and not any other company. This explains why many clocks and watches are made and signed by London makers who do not appear in the clockmaker's company records. Although many tradesmen are recorded as having been pursued for not being members, this did not apply to those who were already members of another company. So, a clock by Daniel Parker, who made a a number of clocks, um, but he was not recorded in the clockmaker's company. This is by no means an isolated example, and one has to look through Tom Robinson's book, The Long Case Clock, to realize how many clocks, even special, complex, or astronomical examples, exist by listed London makers. Unlisted only because the monumental task of searching the records Of the numerous other trade guilds has not yet been attempted. The system was much more complex and inconsistent than we are often led to believe. With the regulations being so complicated there must have been widespread bending of the rules and the the situation can never have been as straightforward as it is often portrayed. So during the second half of the 18th century, Many London clockmakers and watchmakers regarded the clockmaker's company still trying to maintain craft skills and quality as largely irrelevant in an era of increasing industrialization. As a result, the unofficial trade association sprung up, comprising both non-members of the company and dissident members. These groups mainly acted as pressure groups trying to persuade the clockmakers' company to take a firmer line with the Board of Customs on such matters as control over illegal imports. One such group, active in the 1780s, was the Devil Tavern Group, named after the London Inn in which they met. It included a number of prominent clockmakers and watchmakers, such as Benjamin Volemy, Josiah Emery, James Tregon, George Maguette, François Pergill, William Fraudsham, and John Arnold. In America, trade organizations were far less important and existed on a less formal basis than in Great Britain. There was little need to control the market or limit competition, since the demand for goods and skilled labor often outstripped supply. Nevertheless, in Philadelphia, the Center for Colonial Crafts, several guilds, including the Tailors, <clears throat> the tailors, the silversmiths, and the cord companies were founded in the early days, but only the carpenters company survived the revolution. The clockmakers and watchmakers also had a trade guild, but its existence appears to be known only through a series of advertisements in the Aurora General Advo- Advertiser in December of 1790 regarding a dispute between the promoter, inventor, and watchmaker Robert Leslie, and John Wood, a watchmaker and materials supplier for information of the supply of clock materials in wood. Leslie had invented some improvements to clocks and watches and had been granted the exclusive right to construct and sell them by the General Assembly of the state. His improvements found little favor with his fellow craftsmen other than due to jealousy or because they were they regarded them as no improvement at all. So John Wood and the rest of the company agreed to deny the sale of materials to Leslie. While the details of the dispute need not concern us further here, it is clear that there was guild of clock and watchmakers in Philadelphia from the 1780s when they took part in the procession to celebrate the federal constitution to 1790 which had regular meetings, made regulations regarding control of the trade, and minutes were kept by a clerk. Further details are not known, but it is possible that other New England settlements had similar organizations. While makers of brass movements in America followed a similar apprenticeship scheme to that in Great Britain, this often did not apply to makers of wooden movements. Most worked alone in rural communities without any apprentices. Eli Terry, who had one apprentice, was an exception. The start start of true mass production of wooden clocks in 1807 to 1810 heralded in the new and the end of the apprentice system in America. Although it lasted for about another 15 years for the makers of eight-day brass movements. So that's going to conclude our information of clockmakers and the clock trade. And I uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, you know, our next, uh, our next episode is going to be uh, talking about the name on the dial, which is, seems to be very, very confusing. Um, and we'll get into that in just a bit. So Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.